Welcome to Ed Talks, an audio podcast presented by Achieve Twin Cities in partnership with Graves Venture, a project of the Graves Foundation. Ed Talks is a lively series of community conversations about public education and related issues that impact our young people. In this Ed Talk, Maren Christensen Holfer will share her perspectives on how ableist ideas inform our educational systems and the profound impact educational practices and policies can have on students with disabilities. She will offer a new vision of education that replaces ableist ideas with models of true inclusion, including concrete steps we can take towards realizing that vision. This Ed Talk was live streamed from Ice House in Minneapolis on April 19th, 2023. Thank you, everyone. Welcome. I am so glad to have you join us this evening. Um, and it's a pleasure to be here. And it's a pleasure to talk to you about ableism. Because to me, this is a topic that we are not talking about enough in education. Um, there are so many families that are uh, faced with children with disabilities. and it's really exciting to be able to have this conversation with you. And before I dig in, I'm just curious to know, how many of you have ever had a conversation about ableism before? How many of you have encountered that term before? Yeah, great, so most of you, that's fantastic. I'm glad to hear it. So I'm gonna start off with a little definition of ableism to get us started here. And is it often the case that people that are our greatest teachers on this subject are people with disabilities who've really been leading this conversation and the definition that I have here comes from Talia Lewis, who is a disability advocate. And TL writes, ableism is a system of assigning value to people's bodies and minds based on societally constructed ideas of normalcy, productivity, desirability, intelligence, excellence, and fitness. These constructed ideas are deeply rooted in eugenics, anti-blackness, misogyny, colonialism, imperialism, and capitalism. The systemic oppression leads to people and society determining people's values based on their culture, age, language, appearance, religion, birth, or living place, health, wellness, and their ability to reproduce, excel, and behave. You do not have to be disabled to experience ableism. So we're getting right into it here. Um, we're going to dig right in. And I think it's worth spending a minute or two to just kind of unpack this a little bit before we talk about how it connects to education. Um, what this is, is a system of discrimination. It's a, it's a system of oppression that says one way of being, of existing in the world, takes priority over all others. It's a system that tells us, you know, if you meet our standards of behavior and communication and movement, then your needs are priority, prioritized. And if you don't meet those standards, then you're not. Then you're less worthy, you're less valuable. So what does this look like when we see an education? It shows up um, in some pretty obvious ways and some that are a little bit more insidious. So I'm gonna start off with one here. Who's, who here has heard of Listening Larry? <laughs> Anyone run across Listening Larry? So this is a model that's often used with preschoolers and kindergartners. And what Listening Larry here is telling us is that listening in school looks a certain way. You have your eyes on the speaker, your body is still, your feet are in one place, you're not moving around or wiggling like most kids do. 
And this is a perfect example of ableism at work here because it says, you know, this is the right way to listen. And if that's not the way you listen, then, you know, this is space isn't for you. You're not measuring up. You're not meeting the standard. And I can tell you, you know, my son is autistic. He has ADHD. You know, he has a couple of um, mental health anxiety issues. And for him, if we are insisting that he make eye contact with us, I can guarantee you that he's not going to hear a word that you say. <laughs> because the act of requiring that eye contact is taking every ounce of attention that he has. He will be so focused on maintaining the eye contact that the words are just lost. So again, this is a great example of what ableism looks like, how it shows up in our schools. The next example I'm going to give you, it's kind of hard to read here, but this is from a special education assessment. And this is the real deal here. This is taken from one that uh, we looked at with a client, given with their permission. And what it basically says is, the examiner had to work hard to engage and keep attention. The child did not demonstrate functional play with toys. Rather, he only lined up items. There was no imitation or spontaneous pretend play. He showed definite sensory interest in the ADOS 2, that's an autism um, assessment. And if, does there anything jump out at you with this? Is there anything that kind of rubs somebody the wrong way? Maybe the word functional play? What does that mean anyway? Like, does play have a function? Well, we see this a lot with autistic children that we want play to look a certain way. When you're playing with a truck, you lose it, use it like a truck. You know, you use it to drive around on a road. Um, what this examiner is saying is this child was lining up the trucks, maybe in color order is a common thing with autistic children. And it did not meet that assessor's expectation of what play looked like. This is another example of ableism at work. The child is not measuring up. They're not meeting our standards. I've got another example here from an IEP. And for those who may be not in the know, an IEP is an individualized education program. That's basically the contract that we put together for all children with disabilities that meet um, the disability standards to uh, receive special education services in our schools. And what this one says is the child needs to go from a level of being able to do 10 minutes of seat work in five out of 10 trials to a level of being able to do 10 minutes of seat work in eight out of 10 trials. And first of all, this is the way these things are really written. <laughs> that's, that's an actual goal from an IEP. Uh, anything here jump out at you? Maybe the seat work? I don't know. I always find this kind of astonishing. As adults, we figured out that, you know, we like standing desks. We like to move. You know, we all have access to treadmills and encourage walking meetings all that time. But for this child, one of their goals was to be able to sit in a seat and do work for 10 minutes. Um, that is ableism at work. Maybe for that child, sitting and attending to a task might look different. You know, some kids like to walk, some kids might like to move, some kids, you know, rather than writing, might want to speak assignments out loud. But ableism tells us there is a certain prescribed way of doing things, and if you're not measuring up, then you're not meeting the standard. I'll give you another example here. This is one that um, probably many of you have heard about here. Um, there was this recent story in the news, I think it's in, in um, Hopkins, charming, heartwarming story of children raising an incredible amount of money for an ex inclusive and accessible playground at their school. And I think most people would see this story and think, oh, you know, isn't that amazing? That's wonderful that these, raised, these kids raised all that money. But my question is, where were the adults? 
why was this playground constructed in a way that wasn't accessible to the kids to begin with? You know, we see all these pictures of five, six kids that are wheelchair users sitting on the sidelines, not having access to a playground. That is ableism at work, saying you're, the way you move, the way you exist, the way you uh, are in the world is not the priority here. Your needs are secondary, so we require a special project with kids to raise money <laughs> above and beyond what's provided by the school. That is ableism. And I think the other point that's really worth uh, mentioning here is, you know, what happens if you're not from a really affluent suburb that has the capability of raising $700,000 for a playground? You know, what if you happen to be a kid uh, who is a wheelchair user who has accessibility needs that doesn't attend one of those schools? Are you just out of luck? That's also ableism at work. So I'll give another couple examples here, and then we're going to kind of talk about what all this means. Um, I wanted to provide this one because it's a, a, another example from an IEP. And what it says is, the student needs to improve his sensory processing in order to participate fully in the ac academic setting. They need to improve their expressive and receptive communication. They need to improve cognitive skills. They need to improve social-emotional skills. Self-help skills should be monitored. I don't know about you, but when I read that, what that says to me is the child needs to be less disabled. That's what we're asking of them. In order to be included, they need to be less disabled. And is that really a reasonable thing to ask of a child to have to earn the right to be included? That's the question that ableism asks of us. The last one here that I want to talk about, this kind of breaks my heart every time I read it. Um, this is from another special education assessment. And I just want you to put yourself in the shoes of a parent who um, maybe has a, a young child, let's say um, a toddler, and you've maybe noticed some developmental differences and you've gone for an, in for an assessment through your school district, and they call you in for this meeting and hand you the stack of papers that's 30, 40 pages long. And one of the things that it says in that assessment is, children with child's range of concern tend to be argumentative, defiant, moody, whiny, and or having trouble controlling temper can be rude, destructive, or dishonest, have poor social skills and difficulty with peer relationships, are challenged to read social cues, be inflexible and have difficulty with transitions, have difficulty controlling worries, cry easily, clingy, be irritable, negative, and sad, and show morbid themes in play. Please refer to table below. How would you feel if that was your child? This is from an actual IEP, and I will tell you this is not an exception. This is not an outlier. This happens all the time. How would you feel if I told you that this child is four years old? I don't know about you, but you know, most of the preschoolers and toddlers could probably fit that description at some point in time. In this particular case, this parent was outraged. And they sat through the rest of that meeting and they picked up their papers and they walked out of that school. They walked out of that school district and they basically said, if that's how you see my kid, I don't want to have anything to do with you. So that parent knew ableism. Maybe they didn't have the word for it, but they saw it and they recognized it for what it was. But I think the other really important part of the story here is that's a very privileged action to take. So many of the families of children with disabilities really don't have that option. You know, maybe you, um, you know, are not aware of other uh, open enrollment options or charter school options, or maybe you live in a rural area, 
or maybe you speak a language other than English and are just have never been made aware of that there are other options. Um, but this is another example of what ableism looks like in our educational system. So I want to talk a little bit about you know what the harm is of this. I think some of it's probably self-evident. Um, you know, if we are telling children basically, you know, you need to conform the, to this standard, you need to exist in this kind of framework of being, and kids aren't meant, uh, measuring up to that, that takes a huge toll on mental health. And that's a really important thing. We've all been talking a lot about mental health issues, but we don't talk a lot about the intersection between mental health and disability. And we don't talk about, you know, how some of the things that we're doing in schools are actually causing mental health problems either. We don't talk about teacher burnout. You know, if you are a teacher who is tasked with goals around making a child less disabled, that's a really frustrating task. That's not one that's going to lead to a lot of success. And if you are being evaluated and graded on your ability to make a dis disabled child less disabled, that's not a recipe for career satisfaction, I would say. I think the other thing that we need to talk about that's really relevant to us all here in Minneapolis is about the cost. How much money do we spend on goals that are really missing the mark, that are you know, rooted in ableism? How much time and effort are we spending in things that um, you know, children may not or should not try and achieve? Um, like the student who needed to improve his sensory processing. That's like telling a student who is deaf or hard of hearing, you need to improve your hearing before you can participate in the classroom. That's not a reasonable goal. There's no amount of money that you can spend that will help the student reach that goal. But yet we do a lot of that kind of thing in our schools. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the effects on discipline too. This is another thing that uh, is really near and dear to my heart as I see a lot of the conversations that we have with families focused around discipline. And I think the statistic that really jumps out at me is we have roughly 14 to 15% of our students identify as students with disability, but 60% of our disciplinary issues uh, are geared towards students with disabilities. And how much of that has to do with ableism? I really don't know because we don't measure it. But I suspect if we really dug in and looked at how many times disciplinary issues were the result of a student not meeting expectations because of their disability, that number is going to be pretty high. I also want to talk a little bit about what we call restrictive procedures. And this is things like seclusions or holds. Last year, we had 8,537 of them in Minnesota. And all of those were students with disabilities. Are we OK with that? We need to talk a little bit about the harm in terms of academics. You know, we've all heard the discussion about MCA tests and how abysmal the scores are and how frightening are, but we're not talking a lot about what that looks like for students with disabilities. Here again, the data shows us we know like roughly half of our students in the general population are meeting standards, and that's not okay. But we're not talking about, you know, that drops in half again. Roughly only 25% of our students with disabilities are meeting standards. And when you look at students with intersecting identities, students that are both African American and a student dis with disability, that drops even further, down to 14 and 12%. Again, I ask the question, are we okay with that? How much time are we spending on meeting those goals towards making students less disabled that could be spent on academics, that could be spent on really improving those students' skills? 
We talk a little bit about segregated settings. You know, I mentioned when a st student isn't meeting expectations, then what happens to them? They get shift off to another classroom. <laughs> they spend less time with their uh, peers. And all of the evidence that we have about outcomes for students with disabilities tells us that kids do better when they're included. Um, there are you know, decades of research that tell us that. But then again, the data tells us a very different story. That's not what we actually do. The inclusion rates for students with disabilities are abysmally small. And again, it won't come as any shock to you that if you look at kids with intersecting identities, um, it's an even worse picture. We highly, dis our disproportionality of kids that we segregate increases greatly if they are people of color. And again, you know, we have the intersection of racism and ableism playing a factor in pushing these kids out of the classroom, pushing them out into segregated settings. So the, this leads me to a lot of questions. I mean, is this working for students? Is it working for staff? Is it working for families? Um, my answer, based on the work that I do as an advocate, is a pretty vehement no. But the truth of the matter is that we have no idea because we don't collect the data, we don't ask the question. The last time the state actually conducted an audit of how we were serving students with disabilities was in 2013, 10 years ago. And I'll give you a guess how many students were interviewed for that survey, zero. I'll give you a guess how many families were interviewed for that survey, zero. So that kind of makes me think like that's like having Yelp, but only inviting the you know, restaurant employees to fill out reviews. I mean, that, does that make sense to anybody? We just don't know how many students um, how are being served and how well we're ser they're served because we're not even asking the question. But fortunately, I think there are some good answers to what we need to do here. And I mentioned at the beginning, you know, we have a great leadership in our disability community here in Minnesota. We have people that are willing to share their experiences and give us their wisdom. I often say that as a parent, 90% of the most valuable information that I have gained about how to serve my child and support him has come from adults with disabilities. But yet, what percentage of our teacher training about how to support kids with disabilities comes from the disability community? Very, very little. How much of our professional development involves people with disabilities? Very, very little. So some, some easy steps that we can take. I think um, I wanna invite you to get involved in this conversation and to learn more about it and to work with myself and other organizations that are really working to bring this issue of ableism to the front. Um, and I just wanna end with the thought that our kids really need us to do better. Thank you. Ed Talks is presented by Achieve Twin Cities in partnership with Graves Venture, a project of the Graves Foundation. For more information on Ed Talks, or to watch Ed Talks videos, or listen to audio podcasts, visit AchieveTwinCities.org.